Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing. The good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who have done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 34 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. So uh, this week, I'm going to be chatting to uh, a very long-standing friend and ex-colleague, Tom. Tom Squibb. Tom and I were in Special Branch together for many years. Uh, kind of joined at the hip, really, for quite a few of those years, working together in counterterrorism operations, uh, then in the intelligence cell, sensitive intelligence cell, and then we uh, we both worked as surveillance photographers together. So, um, yeah, really good mate. And um, the reason I wanted to speak to him was, yeah, well, it's always nice to catch up with an old friend, isn't it? And have a good chat and reminisce. Um, but also just to talk through his some of his perceptions of his disenchantment with policing, why he left, uh, and then why he... Uh, went into teaching and just to sort of get his thoughts on, you know, sort of do a bit of a compare around policing versus teaching and uh, get his thoughts on all of that. So, but before we do, uh, as I do, just uh, a little reflection on what's been going on this week in policing the last seven days. So, last week saw the departure of uh, the much loved Cressida Dick. Uh, commissioner of the Met Police, uh, forced out by uh, Sadiq Khan. I don't know if anybody who has read anything I've done or li- listened to anything I've said about Sadiq Khan will know I'm not a fan. I think he's a deeply unpleasant individual. Uh, it was certainly interesting to listen to what Cressida Dick had to say as she was leaving around the interference in the process of justice and public safety interference by politicians in that, which has been, as I've made in my book, made clear in my book many, many times, unbelievably unhelpful to the wider public, public safety, uh, and is very much part of the, the reason why I think uh, policing is in such a flipping mess. So the Deputy Commissioner, Sir Stephen House, the ex-Chief Constable of Police Scotland, is going to be holding the fort, I believe, until the summer, uh, until they find a replacement. So, uh, so yeah, interesting to see who uh, is uh, is put into that job, which I believe has now become impossible. I did actually send Cressida a copy of my book, and uh, I really hope that she's read it. And uh, if she has, I hope she enjoyed it. And uh, I definitely going to try and get her on this podcast at some point 
I'm not going to be holding my breath. I think, uh, you know, she's a very uh, politically savvy woman and um, I think she'll probably let the dust settle for a little bit before she appears on anyone's podcast, least of all mine. And just briefly, I want to talk about a an excellent report that came out last week from the Social Market Foundation. So um, the Social Market Foundation describes itself as Britain's leading cross-party think tank, standing proudly in the centre ground of politics since 1989. We bring together people of all parties and none to develop evidence-based policies that support a fair society and a strong economy. And they brought out a report all about policing, which uh, I'll just sort of talk about some of the highlights from that report, which I thought was excellent. So the author of the report, who is, give him a, give him a uh, mention, uh, Richard Hyde, who's one of the senior analysts, uh, he acknowledges the pretty dire state of policing in England and Wales and uh, talks about some of the findings from the strategic review of policing and uh, but he decides to come at it from a slightly different angle and he talks a lot about numbers of police officers in England and Wales and uh, describes obviously how those numbers fell dramatically under this, this Tory government uh, and then you know a realization that they'd gone uh, far too far and they're now sort of trying to recruit uh, extra, it's not an extra to 20,000, it's 20,000 officers to try and replace the 20,000 lost under Theresa May. Um, but uh, interestingly, um, so it talks initially about the levels of public satisfaction in policing, which have kind of nosedived a little bit in the last 10 or 12 years ago, which entirely in line with the uh, loss of resources. And um, and he talks about how uh, the number of offences, criminal offences, detected by police officers uh, in England and Wales has steadily declined uh, since 2011 to the rate of about 6% today. Um, and in fraud, and this one was a real shocker to me, uh, only 0.1% of all frauds reported to the police end in a charge or a summons. You know, it's worth thinking about that, the numbers of frauds. And that is the um, uh, fraud accounts for four in 10 of all crimes committed in the UK. And 99.9% .9 of all fraud goes undetected, which is a shocking shocking statistic um, but then he talks about police numbers and and that's really interesting because he does a bit of a compare with police in other equivalent western countries and it it turns out i didn't know this i've got to say that england and wales have the lowest numbers of police per 10 per 100,000 of the population in europe so, currently uh, in the UK, we have about 230 officers per 100,000 members of the public, compared with 
the average for the rest of Europe of 357. So the highest uh, in Europe is Italy, that has about 430 officers. So nearly double what England Wales has. Spain has about 380. Um, and say so the average European, out of 32 European countries, the average is um, 357 against our 230-odd. So when you look at the dire detection rate of 6% of total recorded crime and 0.1% of all frauds, and you look at you know, 50% of police stations closed and sold off in England and Wales, 75% in London. And we have the lowest, not just the lowest number of police officers per capita in Europe, but way, way, way lower than most other countries. Then it's hardly surprising that we have these desperately poor um, outcomes and very low levels of public satisfaction. I mean, even Scotland, looking at this table, even Scotland has got something like 330 um, police officers per 100,000. So, yeah. So the statistic from that report that really um, made me sit up and pay attention was that given the government have keep on banging on about these they keep Boris, Boris, Priti Patel keep talking about, you know, we're recruiting an extra 220,000, which is bullshit. It's not an extra. It's just replacing those they took away in the first place. Uh, but they don't talk about the 25,000 members of police staff that they also took away. So they're not being replaced. Um, but if you compare where we are with every other country in Europe, in order for us to get up to the European average of numbers of officers in England and Wales, we would need to recruit, hold on to your hats, uh, 70,000 more police officers over and above the 20,000 that they're currently recruiting in Operation Uplift. So they would need to recruit 90,000 police officers just to reach the European average. I just thought I'd share those numbers with you. Right, anyway, on that cheery note, uh, let's get into the conversation with Tom, um, which I enjoyed very much indeed. Mr. Squib? I'm here, but it's quite trouble. Oh, there we go. Oh, there you are. Let me just put my earphones in. You look like Ernest Shackleton this morning. Can I just say that? Say that again. So you look like Ernest Shackleton. Well, <laughs> it's funny you say that because um, I don't buy anything. You don't and I never buy anything. Buy anything. I don't you, buy anything. And you, you live on seal blubber. <laughs> well, that's that's what yes. you look. That's what you look like from your very well-fed, ample physique. Can I say? <laughs> oh no! This is look, there's, a, there's volume in this jumper. Oh, yeah, it's a baggy jumper. Oh, that's it a... is a baggy jumper, but um, I, I don't buy anything. And then I, I've been thinking recently about you know I'm trying not to have many animal products, but this is actually a pure new wool 
sweater. Is it? Uh, looks, from looks, a bit, looks a bit Marks and Spencers to me. I've heard of it. It's not M&S, um, no? Uh, not M&S. If you want to feel really, really, if you want to feel a sense of existential angst, go into Marks and Spencers men's clothing department and um, look around you and at the age profile of most of the men buying the clothes. <laughs> well, people your age and more, are they? Well, they're um, kind of kind of in God's waiting room, aren't they? Most of them. <laughs> well, this is this is my this is my new favourite thing. But when I put it on, I thought, yeah. Um, one of the one of the guys on Shackleton's journey was Tom Cream, and there's pictures of him wearing exactly this sort of thing. And I never even thought of that, but of course, you know, somebody the other day said, you know, and I'm not one of these, all that dumb little bits. And he said, "Oh, you look like a mountaineer." He's like, yeah, "I'll take that." Uh, but know the, the the real truth. But so, how are you doing? You're you're right. Yeah, I'm good. Um, I'm really uh, I'm really chuffed to have you on actually because um, I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a while. Um, uh, because I've never actually interviewed any of my like really close mates, really. No, well, I, I don't really put you in that category, to be fair. But no, I I, I do because um, you know you and I go back a long time, don't we? And uh, we've done a lot of stuff over the years. And um, yeah, there's a, a few reasons why I wanted to chat to you on the podcast. Um, first, first being because I I just generally feel a bit sorry for you, and uh, I wanted to you know do something that would make you feel a bit better about yourself or maybe feel important in some way <laughs> going, going, going on a very niche minority chat show <laughs> yeah you like to refer to it as my chat show don't you um, <laughs> um but also um there's some stuff there for me about uh your reflections back on counter-terrorism policing way back in the day back in the 1990s and um your growing sense of disillusionment with policing this decision to leave and then your experiences since then in in of all things teaching which if i'd been given a million pounds to bet what job you were going to do when you left the police i would definitely not have put it on being a primary school teacher <laughs> and you'd be right <laughs> <laughs> so we'll come we'll come on to that in a little bit so uh, I'll try and put my serious head on a little bit now. Um, so we, I'm trying to think when we first met, it would have been when we both were posted to Special Branch. So I went to Special Branch in the Met in 1994. Um, when did you go to Special Branch? I think it was, I think it must be the same year, 93 or 94, I can't remember now. Um, right. it's, it's pretty much the same time as you as far as I I remember. And how much policing service did you have at that time? Well, I joined in 88 um, and I was in South East London. So I did a couple of years in uniform, then went on to sort of various, I don't know, sort of task force, crime squaddy things that were kind of plain clothes. And then the crime squad. And then, yeah, so about five, six years I had when I joined Special Branch. Right. So you're a bit of a... Um, very common in the Met in those days, possibly not as common today uh, for all sorts of reasons that we probably won't go into. But back in those days, uh, the Met was very, and I've had a bit of stick from people about being too focused on the Met and the podcast. Like, so, oh, you know, there's the, you know, police, there's more to police than the Met. And, and there is, but I suppose it's just because a lot of the, a lot of the people I know from way back in those days are Met officers, I suppose. So, 
But back in those days, um, people joined the Met from literally every corner of the UK, didn't they? And, and not only that, but from kind of every social class as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was probably the broadest mix of people I have ever been amongst. And when I joined, I think, um, at Hendon Training School, they, many, I mean, it was a disproportionate number of Scottish people, I seem to remember, and I don't mean that in any silly way. Um, but I, think, I, think it's because they got, I think it's because they got pissed in London, didn't have the money to get back to Scotland and decided to join the police instead, didn't they? Well, you're very brave saying things like that. Um, but no, I think, I, th what I think probably what you're getting onto is, yeah, I mean, I'm from London. And I think we were in very much in the minority. Um, and I think it was it was it was just a very broad spectrum of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And I don't think you'd probably find that anywhere else, actually. And you um, were brought you were brought up in uh, in Croydon, weren't you? I'm a Croydon boy of all places, yeah. And um, and you went to uh, as I like to remind you, you went to a minor public school, didn't you? Well, I wouldn't say it was a public school, but it was an independent school. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah so, don't, don't lump me in with those people. Those so you, had people a, you, you had a... Um, it always makes me laugh. You just tell these stories about... Um, you kind of had Victor like a Victorian father, didn't you? <laughs> and, uh, and he would pack you off. To, to, you'd have to make your own way to school at the age of four or something, didn't you? I think, yeah, because we went to... My brother and I, we lived over... Um, so Coshaw on Sunday, which you'll know from early police experience. So, yeah, we I remember getting the train. I must probably five, say five, and my brother was seven. So we'd walk a mile <laughs> to the train station, get on the train, get on the train, go to stops, try and keep the tickets in those days for some reason, uh, walk about, I don't know, maybe half a mile at the end, and that was it. So that was our daily journey to, to and from school. And that I was think five. I I think that that was fantastic preparation for a career in policing, wasn't it? To be fair. <laughs> well, he had to harden up quite quickly, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, um, going back to that point about people, you know, joining the Met from all over the country and from all sorts of social classes, um, you had everything in the Met from uh, blokes who just come out of the army, who were kind of hard as nails and called kind of real proper core blimey you know cockney londoners all the way up to people who spoke with a plum in their mouth didn't they and and you were definitely in the uh sort of plum in the mouth uh end of that particular social spectrum weren't you i think you're being very harsh on me here i i i, I know i know what you're saying yeah, i mean it's independently educated you know middle class background i suppose um, I wouldn't say plumb in the mouth, but certainly, I mean, there were people plumbing, I'm sure, not plumbing. Um, but yeah, I think there was a, a whole a whole range and it worked. And you tell a great story, don't you, of um, of dealing with some bloke because you were posted to Carter Street, weren't you? Which That's was, right. Which, yeah. was, which was rough, wasn't it? And, <laughs> yes. uh, and you tell a story about the bloke who accused you of coming from somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, well, I was told not to swear. No, I can't remember what it was, though. No, Am I allowed swear, to? You can swear on this podcast, yeah. Uh, well, well, thank you. Well, <laughs> he said something like, something like, oh, you're, you're fucking posh, aren't you? But you come from somewhere fucking posh like Dartford. And I thought <laughs> that was excellent because, you know, that's... I, mean, I actually shouldn't laugh completely, but that was aspirational for, for him. You know, there he was in a pretty, pretty grotty area. And he obviously aspired to sort of just move out east and get to Dartford. And, you know, 
Yeah, I, mean, I, think it, I, think, I think you were turning that down. My my recollection first time <coughs> you told me that story was that he accused you of being a he dropped the C bomb, didn't he? You're a posh C bomb. Oh they? yes, that's yeah. You're probably right. You're probably right. You know, but uh, that that's been used many times. So you know, fades into you know. But um, so what was your uh, what were your memories of of policing Carter Street? Because that was that was a rough old part of London, wasn't it? It was really rough. I mean, you know, to be fair, okay, Croydon isn't the the the, the you know, most beautiful places. Um, but I mean, I'd never seen anything like it in my life, to be fair. And I went there and I realised, you know, you've got to sink, you sink or swim in, a, in an area like that. Hugely deprived, um, very run down. These huge sprawling estates that have been built in the 60s, presumably to replace, uh, well, either from bomb damage or to replace old Victorian sort of tenements and what have you. Um, so just incredible levels of deprivation that I'd never seen, ever. Um, and of course, the majority of people there getting on with their lives quite peaceably and lawfully. But it was, uh, I mean, where is that? A sandwich between Peckham and Brixton, effectively. And, <clears throat> you know, it was it was ropey. So I kind of realised you've got to toughen up and do this properly or, you know, you're not going to survive it, really. And I think that, that those couple of years spent policing there were probably the best education I'd ever had. You know, I'd done... Levels in those days now, GCCs and A levels, not very well, I had to say. Um, and but you know, and that's academic, isn't it? But that was that was the best education. I've always thought, and I'm sure we'll come on to it later. I always thought when we ended up working, you know, we we're working in counterterrorism and so on, and those other organizations we'd worked with who were, you know, very intelligent, really switched on people. But they, if they'd have just had those two years mm. of experience of working in places like that, they would have been fantastic operators. Um, because I just think that teaches you yeah. everything, really. Well, I think uh, it's not just... I mean, I think you're probably referring to our cousins in MI5, aren't you, probably? Yeah, basically, um, yeah. When we were in that world who, as you say, were very intelligent, most of them, but some of them were, you know, very very limited understanding of how the world works, really, and, um, you know, particularly in the gritty end of the world, you know. Uh, not all of them, but a lot of them did, didn't they? Um <laughs> But yeah, I th but I think you can say the same about so many other areas of, of life. Um, and I was listening, I've been listening to an awful lot of podcasts recently, quite a lot of sort of military type podcasts. And there's one called HR, which which I was interviewed on myself. And and it's really interesting when you listen to some of the squaddies, ex-military ex people talking about the difficulties that they have reintegrating back into the so-called, you know, in inverted brackets, inverted commas, real world, after they've been deployed on military operations in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, they find trying to just find common ground with people who have, you know, normal jobs, very, very difficult. And I think it's the same for the police sometimes. Did you find that, that after you had a couple of years in working somewhere like Carter Street, it was really you know, hard to, you know, I, I mean, sir, I can only speak for myself. I used to find it, I used to look around me and just think, oh my God, you people have no clue what's going on. You've no understand, no clue what's going on in, in the world. You know, it's kind of, it, it does make you feel a bit um, alienated from the rest of the world sometimes, do you think? I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think, I mean, I'm trying to cast this cast my mind back a, a long way and obviously subsequent experiences have probably clouded that that those memories but yes I think so I think I think so, certainly in terms of uniform policing it removes you a little bit from what everyone else is doing 
very simply because of the logistics, I think, in terms of shift work, shift work and so on and so forth. But I think also probably the things you're seeing and doing, um, you know, the only other people really that are seeing that day in, day out, probably people that work in the NHS, ambulance drivers, they, those are the people who are, who are kind of, you know, mopping up all that stuff that needs mopping up and often not very nice stuff. So it's very difficult then to have, you go and do something like that and then you finish and you have a weekend and you with, you know, normal people who, who don't work in that environment. And it's quite hard sometimes, or it used to be quite hard to actually have a conversation because um, they'd be talking about something which just seemed so removed, I think, from what the previous week had been like. Um, I think, it, I mean, it's, it, it's very easy to be judgmental about that, thinking, well, well, I know everything and, you know, I've been doing these very difficult things and et cetera, et cetera. But I think the judgmental side is unfair. I think, you know, I had to accept that we're the ones that were actually, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 don't get me wrong. It's not that it's not that I still think like that. I, I thought like that when I was a very young PC. And, and it's a, it's such an unbelievable shock to to see the way the world is that, that you'd never seen that before that side of life before. Um, I, I know with the benefit of age, I understand that it's actually not the rest of the world that's weird. It's the it's the police that are a bit weird, aren't they? You know, because well, yeah, I think so. I think exposed so. Exposed to all that shit all the time, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, and it kind of your mind and your thought processes around this kind of whatever this thing is that you're doing, and nobody else is really doing that. I mean, there are lo- there are lots and lots of different um, professions aren't there that that kind of get very focused on a particular thing. But I suppose. You know, anything like that, which is so varied and so mixed and sometimes so urgent. Um, you know, I think that does perhaps remove you from a, a conversation about, you know, who's having a baby or Yeah, I mean, I listened, whatever, to, you know. I listened to an interview with a guy who was ex, ex-paras and he'd been out in Afghanistan and involved in all sorts of IEDs and uh, firefights and fighting for his life, you know, out there. And then within 48 hours, whatever, he was back in the UK sitting in some like christening party or something, Yeah, you know, and he just felt completely, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, and and none of these people around me understand what's going on. And I do think that when you're in the police and certainly particularly if you're posted to one of those very difficult inner city areas, I do think it's a bit like that. It, It is a bit of a, you know, use excuse the expression, it's a bit of a mind fuck because 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 you're coming home and having to try and integrate back into normal life with people who are just talking about day-to-day stuff and and you've been dealing with some really crazy crazy shit you know and then you've got to come home and be like the dad or the husband or the girlfriend or the whatever you know what I mean it's just a anyway I'm slightly slightly going off um on a bit of a tangent here but well, let, 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 let me just take you further down that rabbit hole. We'll come back because I'm sure we'll talk about later about teaching. But the thing I had found since leaving him, I left, I suppose, about t- nearly 10 years ago. People say, do you miss it? <clears throat> I don't really. Uh, but the things I think I'm, I miss the people, certainly. We can expand on this later. But I think also the thing about really being in any of those environments and perhaps military even more so is the kind of the decisiveness of people, the, the absolute necessity to achieve a certain thing within a very short time frame. And I think I've missed that kind of Mm, organization and just ability just to get on and do it yeah, <clears throat> you know yeah, i haven't yeah. experienced that subsequently but we can talk about that later yeah yeah so anyway so you did a bit of time at cast street um and then you went to special branch so uh well i've obviously talked about um what special branch was like in my book 
um, but it'd be interesting to get your reflections on arriving in Special Branch and, and what you made of the organisation when you first landed. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I'd say overall, that's the part of my sort of policing career I enjoyed the most. Um, I think there were a lot of like-minded people there. I think, actually, what I've just said about people, you know, just getting on and doing and achieving and realising that there was an important thing to do, I think pretty much everybody was like that. Um, so I kind of, you know, I found it very a very comfortable place to be in terms of the people around me, quite relaxed, quite, uh, you know, intelligent, um, all with the same sort of purpose. Uh, you referred, I think, previously on your podcast and also in the book to sort of various <laughs> uh, interesting characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was also fun too. I'm, I'm desperate not to say the word eccentric, but but there were a few. Um, and I think, so there was that in terms of the organisation, in terms of the people that were there, Felt, felt sort of very at home with those, but also, you know, the work obviously very interesting too, and at the time felt very important, and there was some important work being done. So I think did everything was very satisfying. To, did you go straight onto the Irish, onto B Squad? No, I, I did a, a short spell at, at the airport, which I found deathly, um, and and then then went up to uh, B Squad, the Irish squad, and then stayed there for how many years? I'm trying, I'm trying to think how long that would have been. So it must have been there, I suppose, five years. Um, okay. So that would be sort of At mid least. to late 1990s. At least, yeah. Something like that, yeah. Six years, perhaps. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know if I've answered your question, really. So, yeah, I mean, so you and I, um, you, I think, I'm trying to think when we first met, I think it was probably whenever whenever I got posted to B Squad, which is the Irish uh, Terrorism Operations Squad. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a really intense period, wasn't it? Um and you and I kind of ended up being kind of joined at the hip a little bit for quite a long, quite a few years, really, didn't we? So um, we did a lot of stuff together uh, operationally on on those big um, provisional IRA jobs back in the sort of late uh, mid to late nineties. And then we both got posted to eighteen uh, seventeen, which in those days was was the intelligence cell which liaised with multiple agencies security agencies dealing with sort of the most sensitive stuff i suppose um so yeah i mean it was a funny old world wasn't it because because the, the the room that we had that we worked in together with others um no one else was allowed in there were they and he had to talk to them through this little serving hatch it was like a serving hatch in a 1970s sort of kitchenette wasn't it that's right <laughs> yeah that's right that's right i mean you know it was there for a purpose wasn't it It had to be there but it felt strange um talking to somebody through a hatch uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was really humiliating whenever <laughs> whenever we had been dcs on the main part of the irish team having to go up to 1870 and have conduct these conversations through this ser <laughs> through the serving hatch and if anybody just if any if you pissed anybody off they just closed the hatch <laughs> <laughs> bolt it from the inside but you're right it was like some 90s thing because it was just these kind of little wooden doors with a, a brass bolt on the back snip, of it snip. <laughs> yeah. um, i yeah. remember the safe so these big fucking massive safes like uh, big sort of six foot tall safes to contain all the documents they all had to be locked away at the end of every sort of working day and all the safes had different um <laughs> codes didn't they and it was like it was a freaking nightmare, wasn't it? <laughs> trying 
trying to remember. Nobody knew, the, nobody knew the combinations but from one person. <laughs> and, and, you to, and you had to listen really, really carefully, didn't see all the numbers of the clicks. <laughs> and, if, and if somebody interrupted you halfway through closing the safe, you'd have to start all over again, didn't you? Well, I, I, I imagine probably people interrupted frequently to, to ensure <laughs> that happened. Um, oh, hilarious, yeah. hilarious. So uh, one of the funny stories I remember from working in that in that office was uh, the practical jokes. Some of the practical jokes were very funny, weren't they? And uh, do you remember the time um, uh, one of our colleagues, Dave, we'll call him Dave G. You know who I'm talking about. Um, he was into antique rifles, wasn't he? And he and he used to go and fire these antique rifles down in some range down in Bisley or somewhere like that, wasn't it? That's right. And, that's uh, right. and he collected these rifles and he made his own bullets, didn't he? That's right. And he, did, yeah. um, he had uh, he used to <coughs> cast his own lead bullets that were sort of circuit. They sort of said things they used in the Boer War, weren't they? They were absolutely massive. These bullets. They were probably about the size of your thumb. I think yeah. about yeah, about half half inch or three quarter oh, inch, something like that. Absolutely huge. And then um, uh, Mark of, of uh, Mark K, who you know who I'm talking about. Uh, he's the ex ex para, um, ex para's officer. Uh, he used to bring a packed lunch to and put it in the fridge. So I put. Do you remember I put one of um, these bullets? <laughs> I, I put one of these bullets inside his Scotch egg. Uh, like let's push, I pushed, I pushed it with my thumb. I pushed it all the way inside a Scotch egg, and then then sort of tidied it up, and then put the lunchbox back in there. And then when lunchtime arrived, uh, everybody was sitting watching, like giggling, like schoolgirls, you know, watching. And he was sort of what he was like. You could set your watch back, and it was like one o'clock. He'd get up, he'd go over to the fridge and get his packed lunchbox. Then he'd take it back, sit down, get his Daily Telegraph out, spread it out. Anyway, the first thing he picks out of his lunchbox is a Scotch egg. <laughs> he just takes a massive bite out of it. And you could hear the crunch <laughs> from, from the other side of the office. <laughs> and I'm surprised he didn't lose about three or four teeth. And anyway, because of all the laughter, it was being directed in my direction as the, as the architect of it. He, uh, he came over to me and he started to choke me out. And um, which for anybody listening uh, doesn't understand what that means is you it's a it's a technique where you literally shut off the blood supply to the one of the main arteries to the brain, isn't it? And uh, it's basically strangling you. Basically strangling, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, he came right behind me and started to choke me out. And actually, I started. I actually lost consciousness briefly. For, Did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. Not the not the person to mess about with, wasn't it? Ex Paris officer who'd fought in the Falklands, you know. <laughs> anyway, so um, B Squad. Um, so you and I then, you and I then followed each other, didn't we, onto surveillance after that? And we were both, we were both surveillance photographers, weren't we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, albeit, I was obviously a lot better than you, but uh, we we did the same job for um, several years, didn't we? And uh, what are your memories of that? Is that a job that you enjoyed? Well, my memories of that was you being a practical joke being played on you, but maybe that, we haven't got time for that. Um, <laughs> but also, well, again, I mean, hard, hard work and disruptive to family life, because, of course, you know, you'd think you'd have a weekend off and then, you know, you get a, in those days, a, a page message saying, 
be in a, some other northern city for seven o'clock in the morning for a briefing and then you're there for the whole weekend um so very disruptive but um and, and long periods probably of boredom sitting around waiting for something to happen and then suddenly ha something happens and keeps happening for hours and hours and hours on end so in terms of that again the logistics you know fairly fairly disruptive but a good bunch of people who were just trying to do a very good job and i think on the whole a very very good job was done um so my memories that i mean i must have been there for five on that unit for five years perhaps i can't remember <clears throat> and um my memories of that i think working hard having fun getting upset and bored sitting in car parks for hours and end but realizing that we were contributing to something which was actually very important um, yeah. and it was interesting because the time when we started it was sort of the tail end of uh, Irish terrorism, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, and we were dealing with sort of dissident IRA operations. And then that very quickly, you know, we got 9-11, didn't we? And um, and I remember I was actually in the dark room uh, developing some black and white images. Uh, you know, at the time of 9-11, I was listening to Radio 4 uh, in the dark room. Uh, when when the attacks when this was literally like a news flash kind of thing came in and then we we all ended up standing in the main office of the surveillance department watching watching it happening you know on cnn or whatever and it was yeah and i think we all realized didn't we instantly that life our lives were going to change not just our lives everyone's life was going to change wasn't it i think i think it, it felt potentially apocalyptic um, and I think to us, I mean, we, I mean, I, I'd never worked on that side of things, really. I know other people were. Um, and I think you previously referred, again, either in the podcast or the book, to the fact that, you know, people have been chirping for a long time about, you know, there's things going on here we need to look at, but the concentration had been on Irish republicanism and a few other bits and pieces, probably to the neglect of, you know, wider international concerns from which that was born. But I remember just standing there thinking this is potentially the end of everything because who knew what the reaction of the United States was going to be, which, which actually initially was very measured. Um, thereafter, perhaps not so much, but yeah, that was, we sort of stood almost stunned, didn't we? Yeah, um, yeah, but then yeah. there was a period for us, there was a period of quiet afterwards while everything was kind of sorted out. And we were, then we started to run around with other bits and pieces associated with that kind of yeah, work yeah and it was a real challenge it was a real challenge wasn't it um i'm not going to talk about you know those sensitive operations obviously um but it was a real challenge because you know weeks before for years before we'd been following around you know white sort of white guys in their late 20s through to their 40s or 50s on mainland operations you know as part of provisional IRA or dissident IRA active service units and then suddenly we had to get our head around you know um, a different ethnicity different clothing different locations where they would be gathering you know compared to the usual haunts that we'd been maybe looking at you know so it was a it was a massive learning curve for everyone wasn't it yeah, I think it was. I mean, I think in terms of uh, our, the way the way we did things, th things, you know, it's a very, very professional organisation. But in terms of being able to mix in areas that perhaps people look less like us, yeah, uh, I suppose that's what you're referring to. That was quite hard. 
yeah. And, and I think also the stakes were potentially different, weren't they? I think whilst whilst somebody that we've been looking at previously, okay, they were very dedicated to their cause, uh, but were, were aiming to do what they were going to do and then leave the country. <clears throat> we knew that some of the people we were looking at now potentially were willing to sacrifice themselves for their cause and we might be involved in anything like that as well. So I think the, the stakes mm-hmm. were different too. <clears throat> yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, the IRA basically, they didn't, they didn't want to die. They didn't want to get caught. Um, and they certainly didn't want to go to prison or anything like that. So they were determined to try and do what they had to do and then get back to yeah, exactly. sort of back home again. Um, whereas these people were a different, different ballgame altogether, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so, um, so you and I then parted company professionally because I left the Met, didn't I, back in 2002 uh, to transfer up to uh, the West Midlands. Um, but you stayed on in counterterrorism, didn't you? But but things were changing, weren't they? And what was what had previously been <coughs> sort of uh, special branch SO12 then uh, morphed into what became SO15, didn't it? Yeah, and I think for me that was kind of the beginning of the end um, because I think that Special Branch was, in my view, a pretty effective organisation, uh, much misunderstood by by other police officers and other colleagues, actually. Um, <clears throat> and you know, forgive me, I can't remember the exact dates and all the rest of it, but I stayed, I stayed doing surveillance for a couple of years, and then I actually managed to get myself promoted, and was the Liaison officer between ourselves and the other um, department doing terrorism, SO13, which then most become um, SO15. And I felt <clears throat> when that then happened, I felt that there was, um, we shed almost voluntarily some very good responsibilities that we had for intelligence work, which I thought had been very effective. And they disappeared and we sort of became, <clears throat> I don't know really, <clears throat> just responding to work given to us and I thought that was a shame because we used to develop our own work um, and when that role went it didn't quite have the same appeal for me really and there was a lot of internal politics uh, you know I, we haven't got time I don't really want to go into but <clears throat> I felt things weren't going well <clears throat> and I think the job we ended up with wasn't the job that I previously had so I was doing a, a much reduced job than I had been doing previously once I was back working in the kind of intelligence side. So when I stuck with it, <coughs> sorry, got a bit of a frog in my throat. Um, I stuck with it for a few years because I realised, I, I, you know, I had a pension to collect. But I mm. thought at that point, I'm going to go 25 years and go and do something else. What, and, sort of, what sort of service did you have at that point? Well, it must have been um, about, I'm trying to think, because the, 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 well, I'll tell you actually, and this, this sounds quite bad, but it was when the, um, there was the attack on the London tubes, the, the tube system in 2005. Um, and I remember at that point, uh, my son was only months old. And I remember at that point on that day, sitting in a meeting where we realised we were going to be at work, you know, for hours and hours and hours for, you know, many weeks to come and months. And I sat there and I thought, goodness, I don't think I'm going to see my son properly, um, yeah, as I should do as a dad, uh, yeah, probably for the next few months. Might get an hour here, an hour there. And sat in this meeting, somebody else who was relatively new to the counterterrorism environment said to me, oh, have you ever been involved in anything like this before? And I said, well, yes. 
okay, maybe not at that scale in terms of, a, of a, an incident that had happened, but in terms of all the work that would go on, yeah, I've been doing it quite a long time. And I thought at well, that point, I think it's probably time to go because the, the politics of the organisation was changing. Yeah. The work we were doing was changing. And I just thought, I've done all this. I actually want to see my sons a bit more. Yeah. So I, I, I cool. you know, you know that you're gonna, you're not gonna have a life, are you? Basically, once exactly. those jobs, once those jobs kick off, as you know, um, your life, your life is just work, 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 isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And you know, and and that is the right thing because that's what you sign up to do. But I think having having already done it a few times, um, and seeing how the the landscape is changing in terms of our role, um, I thought, well, those things together are gonna sort of. I think I'm now going to have a sort of longer term plan to go. Um, I probably said that about five or six years to go, but I thought, okay, well, I'll do those five or six years and then go and do something else. So that I think is when I decided probably I was going to move on. And the next few years of doing some intelligence work sort of didn't change my mind because it, mm. I say the, the role reduced further with every year almost. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and some of the conversations I was having with people made no sense to me and I know you've referred to them previously yeah 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 so I mean uh, and I talk about um you know in my book I talk about it was the time when we saw the the emergence of this very corporate but clueless senior manager in policing who talked in riddles and in language that no one really understood and and didn't have any operational credibility but they were now making some pretty big decisions that were not based, in my view, on, you know, having the scars of many years of experience, you know? Well, that's right. I mean, you, you, you will know who I refer to when there was a, a, quite a small um, detective chief inspector with a deep voice who used to run some of the operations we were doing on the, on the Irish Republic and terrorism, who <clears throat> we were a small group of people, and he would, he would be the ultimate decision maker. But he would get us together and he'd want to know what we thought because we were the people that were actually on the shop floor doing the work. And so when he had to make a decision, he wanted to hear everybody's view. And um, that's one style of leadership that doesn't suit everybody. But we all thought that was very good, not just for that reason, but he was a very good leader. I think it then later in, um, in my service, when I'm talking about really not, not long before I left, you're absolutely right. Some of the people in charge didn't actually know the subject matter and just spoken riddles, which they probably got from a very third-rate sort of management um, textbook of some sort. And I don't think actually were really interested in getting the job done. I think they were just interested in showboating, I suppose, and just, I, I, I don't know what they were interested in, quite frankly, because <laughs> they, they didn't seem to know about terrorism. They didn't yeah. seem to know about how to actually, I don't mean manage people, but lead people. But they would talk endlessly in this, just this jargon which actually didn't mean anything at all and i think you know so we're talking about layer after layer of things were just piling on i thought just had enough of this but we had a lot of and i know who you talk well i don't know can name him i'm sure he'd mind because he because he was he's one of my heroes martin morrissey you know he's he's the who you're talking about he was a superb he was a superb manager superb leader um scared the shit out of me scared the shit out of most of us didn't he um well no but, you're just but, you're just easily frightened i think uh, no i mean not in the sense that he was a he was a bully or anything like that. He wasn't. He's just he was just unbelievably switched on and unbelievably um, uh, knowledgeable. And his decision making was you just couldn't fault it. It was you just knew that when he made a decision about something, it was absolutely the right decision. 
but but you're right he would always consult and listen to people like you and me people so and then he would speak to sergeants he'd speak to a couple of the more experienced and di's and then he'd say right this is what we're going to do and um and this and this is why and you're absolutely right it's th those people became rarer and rarer i think in my in my experience well i think i think the thing is that um i was having this discussion with somebody nothing to do with the police the other day there's a very big difference between leadership and management and i think somebody like him was a leader in terms of well did exactly that leads people in a sort of forward direction <clears throat> and makes decisions based on good analysis and good information and obviously in an environment like that, you know, you don't always have all the information you need to make the correct decision. And, you know, I'm sure he'd be the first to say that, you know, somebody's, but I, I don't disagree with any decision he made, I'm sure. But, you know, he would always be reflective. And that's the other part of that thing. Um, but you always base it on sound understanding and good information gathering, I think. But also a natural way of leading people. And I think the difference between a leader and a manager is somebody like that, who you actually, as a person, you, if that person's your leader, you want to follow them where they go. A manager is somebody who just checks up on what you're doing all the time mm. um, and doesn't actually sort of forge a direction, strategic direction, which, you know, they're going to take you. And mm. I think we lost a lot of very good leaders and gained a lot of, I mean, you can have good managers, of course, but I think we gained a lot of poor managers. We had some fantastic people in those days, didn't we? You know, people like Colin Black, you know, who was, who was, who was brilliant. He went on to become a commander, didn't he? Um, there's very, various other people who were just really, really switched on, weren't they? Well, I think I think actually just going back to something you said right at the beginning about, you know, when I landed in special box, but I think I think there were a lot of people in that organization who actually probably were natural leaders or certainly switched on enough to be that way, but kind of stayed with what they were doing because they enjoyed the subject matter. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in there were people who were actually just very competent. And those who chose to go up for the promotion ladder just got better and better, many of them. Not all of them, but many of them. Um, now, that's not something just within special branch. I mean, you know, throughout my police career, I, I worked for some absolutely outstanding people who, even if you disagreed with their decision, you know, okay, well, that person's made that decision for a very good reason. But as I say, sort of towards the, the end of my career, I think, in the police, they were few and far between. Yeah. So you obviously made the decision to leave um, and... Uh, and go into teaching. So was teaching, I think, was, was that something that you had, had you had you made that decision that it was definitely going to be teaching, you know, because I know that when you, you did a biology degree and you got a first class honours degree, didn't you, when you were still in special branch and, and then you got, you, you started, you got on the whole kind of crazy studying thing, didn't you? I did. And I think, I think, you know, that, that was my interest. And I, you know, still interested in that kind of stuff. And I thought, yeah, my plan after 25 years service, so um, you can retire in the police at 25 years or, or 30 years to get your full pension. I thought, well, I'll do my 25 years and I'll retrain as a teacher and go and teach science at secondary school. Um, because I found, I mean, I just, I, I love the subject and I'm really interested in it. You know, I read all about it all the time and all the rest. I thought, you know, if I can spread some of that um, interest not necessarily knowledge, but interest in that subject, because it is the reality of the world around us, then that's what I'd like to do. Um, and whilst I'm still in the police, I, I went into a couple of secondary schools and saw the kind of, of non-engagement of teenagers, and I thought, well, I'm not so sure about this. Not because I didn't think I could necessarily do all that, but I thought, you know, if I'm going to do a second career, I've got to enjoy myself. And at the time, my own children were in primary education, and I was going and helping out and 
getting involved in those schools. And I saw the enthusiasm that um, primary school children, not all, but often had for learning and just life in general. And I thought, yeah, that's actually pretty good. And I think because, and I know this sounds a little bit odd, but I think because at, at times in my police career, you know, everyone's really enthusiastic. They're up for whatever it is, you know, even if it's very difficult. It kind of just sounds like a, a bit of a non-secretary, but it slightly reminded me of that. Of, at last, I'm back into a situation where everybody's positive. Staff are positive, kids are positive. But yeah, I'll have some of that. So I thought, I'll retrain as a primary school teacher. So, <laughs> so yeah. And, oh, my God. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think... Um, so, at, well, the, at the <laughs> time, at the time, I mean, obviously, I wasn't working with you because I was up in the Midlands. But when you told me that, I thought, oh, my God, he's properly lost the plot here. Um, <laughs> because I just couldn't see you as a primary school teacher, you know, not, no disrespect to primary school teachers, but just, it just seemed like such a, such an unbelievably sort of strange, you know, move for, for you. But, uh, so anyway, tell us, tell us about, about that. What was that like when you started? Well, it was, I mean, it was quite fun because I was an oddity, wasn't I? I mean, most of the people on my, um, my teacher training course that there were, well, much younger, kind of early 20s, most of them were, were women. You know, they were, I think, of the 30s on the course, I think there were four or five men, three or four men, something like that. There was only one, other two, one or two other people. So I was late 40s by then, so only one or two other people of my age there. So I was a bit of an oddity, really. I found it very difficult um, in that training to go from working in an environment where pretty much everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing um, to an environment where nobody knows what they're doing in terms of the children, because, of course, everything you're trying to teach them is brand new. And I found the transition actually of um, trying to teach people something really hard because you know, in the police, you only you say something once and it then happens normally. Uh, well, with primary school children, it, you need to go through it in lots of different ways, explain it in different ways, get them to try it, um, accept that most of them won't understand it the first time around. Why would they? And of course, their reactions to things you're saying completely different from the way an adult would. And it, was, it was that, even though I had my own children, it was very difficult to kind of, transition into that so I found it really hard actually that training year and it didn't always go as well as I wanted to um so 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 it was that but what I what I did like was the very similar actually um as I say positive attitude towards getting the job done so okay they didn't understand it this way so let's find another way of doing it because like in the police here's your objective you have to meet it the same with there. Okay, these children need to understand this by the end of the week. So you've got to find a way of doing it. And so that was good to go with. But actually finding the ways of doing it was hard. I do have to tell you, actually, I don't know if I'm allowed to sidetrack slightly, but your, your little thing about um, putting that, that bullet in the scotch egg reminds mm. me, you know, I was quite mischievous. Um, and I think they were quite surprised what my teacher training. I mean, have you ever sliced a banana from the outside with a, with a pin? I did this this young lad that I was sat with in the, in the training course. So you get a pin and you stick it, you carefully put it through the skin of the banana and sort of wiggle it around and keep doing that. You can just leave tiny little pinholes in the skin, but you can slice the banana from the inside. Oh, so I do, I've oh, done I'm this. So, I'm still going to be doing that later on today. Oh, it's brilliant. So I, I did this, this young lad that was uh, another trainee teacher. And uh, in the middle of a lecture, he opened he opened the banana. I'd forgotten I'd done it. And um, he had opened the, in the middle of a lecture, opened this banana. Of course, it all fell out pre-sliced. <laughs> and everyone else is just looking at him really really laughing and, and i and i just i'd completely forgotten i'd done it actually i i got in, I got in trouble with the person doing the lecture i had to go and apologize later on 
And then I remember we were also doing a, we were doing a, watching a PE lesson go on or something like that. And I was at the end of this long line of trainee teachers. And these young women sit next to me. And you know, when you knock someone's knee from behind, it kind of just makes their yeah. knee crumble. Yeah. Well, I did this to this person next to me. And not only did she fall over, but she knocked two or three people over next to her, right in the middle of this lesson that was being done for us. <laughs> we were supposed to be seated. And they were just looking like, what is wrong with you? And I think, you know, anyway, I don't know why I'm telling you that. But, but so, so those kind of hygiene continued. But uh, back to the serious stuff. And, and yeah, transition in terms of the training was hard. And then the first thing you do as a qualified teacher is a newly qualified teacher. And that's where you basically learn the real, I suppose, craft of teaching. Um, and I did that at a small school in 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 Hampshire, and and thoroughly enjoyed it. It was really hard work, actually, but I thoroughly enjoyed it um, for all sorts of reasons. I don't know, just the positive for children. Um, mm. and what, age, got... what, what age were you teaching? <laughs> year two, so that's six and yeah. two year olds. Oh my goodness! Yeah, but it was great. It was great because they were, you know, I think the thing is when you're with people who are kind of really enthusiastic and. Um, I don't know, just full of energy, you kind of get sort of absorbed into that, really. And so you kind of get a new lease of life, I think. You'll come from, you know, getting pretty hacked off in the police with, I don't know, stupid decision-making and people talking rubbish and all that kind of thing. And actually gone into an environment where people were just the thirst for knowledge, the thirst for enjoyment, and it just gave you a new lease of life. Um, but I didn't, I mean, I did that for a couple of years, and then I, uh, I got very frustrated with, again, the system, because some of the things you actually had to teach, it's like it's like Victorian England schools mm. in this country, that, that the curriculum, it, it, it bears no relationship to what, what people, I think, really need to know in life. Um, mm. And the whole way, you know, they had to sit up straight and they had to do this and it's Mr. This and Mrs. That. And it just seems so removed from it their makes, real life. It always makes me laugh the way the teachers refer to themselves mr hello good morning mr so-and-so and so uh, odd you know it's it is odd isn't it it's really odd it's really odd and i just think it has this kind of i don't know it's trying to superimpose a victorian system on children whose lives are not victorian anymore you know yeah. and you and you're competing with their lives of phones and playstations and you know xbox and that kind of thing and yet we talk to them as if they're living in well, if it's not Victorian, then the 1930s, and it just it just didn't fit with me. So um, so I went off and started working in a um, what's called a pupil fur unit. So that's for um, kids have been kicked out, well, kicked out, excluded from mainstream school, typically because of behaviour, and their behaviour is often very yeah. challenging. But yeah, there'll yeah. be a, some sort of un, un, undiagnosed special need there. Yeah. So yeah. I started working in that environment. Really teenagers, uh, teenagers, yeah. teenagers, yeah, yeah, teenagers. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a few years and then I've just now gone back to uh, mainstream, just doing a little bit of primary stuff and then working in a secondary school as well uh, in mainstream. But it's really uh, it's really interesting <coughs> because I've, I've got uh, I've got I've got two very good friends. One of them is you and the other one is my friend Val and uh, both ex-police officers both ended up as teachers and and he find almost identical what you've just been saying there about some of the nonsensical bureaucracy and all of this kind of stuff and the kind of curriculum and all of this kind of stuff uh you, you might as well have been Val saying all of that stuff um and he ended up in a pupil referral unit as well so that was interesting that two ex-cops end up in in PRUs um so you just thought of, is that it's an interesting one isn't it that they clearly have a 
a draw or an ability to talk to teenagers who are difficult, you know? Well, and I think, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. People will assume, <clears throat> they don't know anything about either. They will assume, yeah, well, you know, an ex-cop or an ex-army officer would go in, they'll be really hard with the children, really strict, or the rest of it. And in my experience, that's not the way to deal with things. In the same in the police, you know, the, the easy thing is to have confrontation with somebody, and sometimes that's necessary. But actually, sometimes you need somebody to do something which at first they're not willing to do. Mm. And treating them with respect and dealing with them calmly and having a conversation with them and listening to them, you know, worked in uniform policing is in the same way it does with a child who doesn't want to do whatever it is you're asking them to do. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah Val, Val would say exactly the same, and he would say that his definition of a good day is only being told to fuck off sort of six times, you know. Well, yes, exactly, and I think, and I think, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> that's a route I could go down, which which would would take far too long. But I think, I think, the th I think the thing is, um, there's all sorts of things in my head, so you'll have to sort of keep me on track here. But I think the thing is, a lot of these kids get kicked out of school because it just doesn't fit them. And I think this is the same with, with all sorts of things. You know, they've been told what to do all day long. A lot of people, including me, don't like that. Equally, some of the things they are having to learn is completely irrelevant, and I agree with that. Here's heresy for you. Why are people still studying Shakespeare 500 years old when they're not, you know, is there no playwright between the 1500s 1600s and now that we can study? Having to, you don't, who understands it? I know that's heresy and a lot of English teachers will get very cross with me. But I've been teaching some, doing some supply work recently, teaching some maths about, I don't know, how, the interaction of triangles and circles. When does anybody, other than a draftsman or a mathematician, ever use that? Mm. So there's lots of things which I think are irrelevant or they believe are relevant to their lives. They're yeah. very difficult to understand. Mix into that a very difficult home life, some mm. sort of educational need, you know. And at some point, that, that person is going to crack. And they end up getting yeah. kicked out of school and then you've kind of lost them. So the job there is to try and bring them back. Yeah. And then just coming back to the point that's making it, it's not about kind of all, you know, being a hard ex-copper, trying to actually, yeah, yeah. you know, browbeat them into it. <clears throat> what it is, mm. is trying to actually get them to understand something, whatever it is, yeah. and just have yeah, to be yeah. a human being. And it yeah. goes back to, Ian, those two years of uniform yeah. on the beat work where you learn how people actually yeah, yeah. tip No, I totally bit. agree. No, I think I think the reason why probably people like you and Val did end up in people referral units is because for exactly that reason, not because we wanted to bribe people or bully them, because that's not, and you know and I know that that's not how how it works on the streets. You don't get the best out of people from behaving like that. You get the best out of people from treating them with humanity and and talking to them in a way that respects their kind of I don't know, I hate this word agency, but you know what I mean? It's they've got their autonomous, unique human beings. And, um, and, and I know, you know, perfectly well without having even seen you in that environment, I know that you'd be brilliant at, at talking to lads who are really, really difficult. And, and I know Val would be as well. And it's, and you're absolutely right. It is that it's that those formative years of uniform policing where you have to very frequently talk yourself out of trouble and calm people down you know, not by threatening them or taking your bat night around, but by just, you know, almost like I would, I used to do, the big one for me was always taking my hat off, take my hat off and sit down yeah. and almost put myself in a, in a sort of a, you know, being careful that you're not going to make yourself a target, but sit down and sort of say, right, 
um, just de-escalate the whole situation and just go, right, come on, let's have a talk about this. You know, just, you, you sit like, I'm, I'm going to sit down here. I'll sit down here. You sit down. Let's have it. Let's talk about this. Yeah. Um, and that, 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 that's exactly right. And I think, you know, that there are times and there were times as you call big stuff. So where, you, you know, you have to deal with things very physically and, you know, that has to be done. There is no option. But to my mind, and I've said this in interviews for various teaching jobs, is not, and this is genuine, I used to try to convince people who had arrested on the street to walk back to the police station with me. Mm. Because the easy thing is to call a van, get all the other, you know, the other police officers come and put them in handcuffs. You know, you can always win that situation, or pretty much always. So actually, the challenge for me is, can I get this person to walk the mile to the police station? I remember taking one on the bus once. And actually, we were told to get off the bus because I didn't want to pay the fare for the prison. I said, well, I've actually arrested him. He said, well, you've got to pay a spare. Well, I didn't have any money. I had to get off the bus. So to my mind, that was that was much more of a success if I'd actually convinced this person, well, you actually need to come with me, you know, and we'll talk on the way on the rest of it. That, I think, is the challenge. And so dealing with um, teenagers, and it isn't just this, it's a, probably an even mix of boys and girls, actually, mm. is there is no point in having a confrontation with a teenager because, well, probably they will win, actually. But... What, what, what are you trying to achieve out of this? You're trying to resolve the situation. So resolution comes from actually having a discussion. And the main thing, I would do exactly that. I would sit on a chair on one side of the room and I'd let them pace up and down the other side of the room. And I said, well, I'm here when you're ready to talk. And eventually they'll open up. And I think they get talked at all day long in schools. And if you just sit and listen occasionally, you get all this stuff and it explains why they are like they are. And you can help them out with whatever else it is. There'll be people probably listen to this thing. Well, you know, they just need to know what the rules are. Well, they know what the rules are, but the rules don't fit them. And yeah, I think you know there, there are having, different ways of dealing with having that. Having had the having had the joys of homeschooling during COVID, you know, because um, you know, having left the police, I was you know probably less. Uh, I had more. I had more time to do that than my wife did. She had a very full-on job working for IBM, uh, which was very intense. She was on calls literally nine, ten hours a day. So it was down to me, you know. And with two kids of of uh, eight and nine, well, there were seven and eight at the start of COVID, eight and nine by the time it finished, it was a bloody nightmare. But it was a it was a a real window into the world of teaching to sort of think, oh my God, as you as you say, some of the things that they're being taught, you just think, well, why the hell do they need to know what an adverbial conjunction is or something? It's just like what the hell I well, don't even know, I don't even know what that is. Why the hell do they need to know what that is, you know? Well no, exactly, exactly. And I think I think we're Teachers are operating in a world where they're having to deliver. They're having to deliver a curriculum which doesn't really mean anything to the to the student. And I, I think if a lot of teachers were honest, they would say, "Well, actually, I'd rather be teaching something else." You, know, you can have a passion for it, particularly in secondary. They can have a passion for their subject, and I'm sure there's things in there. They've got a passion for it. They can probably get those parts of the curriculum across which are necessary or whatever else. But a lot of it, you think, what possible use is this in real life? Mm. Um, and and I, you know, and I, and I think. I think you know we're not in the 1950s anymore and children do have a and i want to say something about this actually in terms of some of the things you've talked about policing and respect and so on so for a minute but i think they're not in the 1950s where they just do what they're told i don't suppose they're in the 1950s either but you know they have other influences around them which mean that they know that the world is bigger and, and actually more interesting to them in the way they access it than school is so you know it's a very hard job from that point of view i mean i had to do a lesson last week on different types of plastic to some 14 year olds i mean come on and then also I, co I covered a i covered a chemistry lesson which was about covalent bonding okay you're into covalent bonds quite interesting but again there was a 14 13 14 year olds 
And because it's not my subject area, there was a video to support the lesson. And the guy in the video literally was talking like this. Now I'm going to talk to you about covalent bonding in large structures. And you think, for goodness sake, man, just, you know, whether the subject matter is interesting or not, have some character about you. You know, mm. these are 13, 14 year olds, responsive in the way they need. Um, I'm going off on yeah. about teaching. So what's That's the, because you're doing the supply teaching now, aren't you? So um, it, did, <coughs> it, it did amuse me that as a, um, uh, as a, a very uh, determined atheist that you had to teach RE, didn't you? Did you have to do some RE lessons? <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. Uh, well, and you're yes. working. You're working in a, a Church of England primary no, school. Okay, so yeah, that was that was when I was actually working in primary school. So Church of England primary school, and yes, you have to do RE. I don't have a problem with that because I think um, if you're teaching, again, you see, I don't see the point necessarily in teaching what the different religions, how they worship this, and what that part of the church is called, and what that part of the synagogue is called, whatever else it is. I think if you teach about their kind of their ethos, I think that's much more interesting. I think that's okay because that brings out conversation and creativity. But yeah, I did actually have to do. A lesson on the power of prayer. <laughs> now, I know you and, and I have stiff on this. Uh, yeah, and you and I have had literally hours and hours and hours and hours over many years uh, debating, very good natured debate about spirituality and faith, and and uh, and I just thought that was hilarious that you were going well, to. Well, shall I tell you what I actually did? I I looked at that and I thought <laughs> I just can't do this, so I. I put some drum and bass on it and make up some dances <laughs> instead. I thought that that's okay, but um, yeah. So that was a, that's an interesting area. Um, I think it's you know RE has it has its place, doesn't it? Because I think it because it opens up a world of discussion about belief systems and about about all sorts of things about ethics and about um, perhaps you know you can mix it with history in terms of why certain historical events have happened, all the rest of it. But I think just teaching in a very didactic way. This is what these people believe. This is what these people believe. And also in, in effect, of religious school, I think telling people that that the Easter story did happen. Well, I, I, I find that hard to reconcile with because I think that's an opinion that some people have. And, you know, I think I think there should be alternatives. But we, we could stray onto a road here Ian, that would make your <laughs> podcast last for a thousand years. Um, but <clears throat> there's something I, do, I just wanted to pick up on really it's just just generally what i find and this, this links to some of the things you've talked about previously on your on your on your chat show uh, oh sorry podcast um and also in your book is the the lack of respect i think you talk about specifically for policing which is markedly different i think now than it was even when i joined and 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 i think that yes you are right and i and i get in fact you've You've, since we've been talking about your book and, and the podcast and so on and so forth, I've listened a lot more actually to things on the radio, watch things on the TV about policing. And, you know, the police come in from absolute hammering mm. almost all of the time, which is, in my view, unjustified um, from politicians and from um, journalists. Yeah, there have been some horrendous things some, that we all know about, you've spoken about many times, that mm. individual police officers have done or small groups of police officers have done. And I think they are generally not representative of the work and the dedication that probably most police officers in this country, you know, the, the work they do, the hard work they do, and the dedication they have, not to themselves, but to public safety. And I genuinely believe that. And I think that the, the press that they get is completely unfair and not yeah. representative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> um, what I see, though, is I think that there is a much wider problem with general lack of 
just respect for other people in society. And, you know, I'm not going all kind of, you know, sort of whatever the word is, all, all fluffy about it. But I see this now, I'm working in secondary schools and the kids don't have any respect for any authority. Mm. You know, teachers are constantly battling in confrontation with kids about this, that and the other. Kids don't seem to think they have to do what they're told. Um, you know, they'll question it, even if it's something that's completely reasonable. I'm not even talking about the curriculum. You know, mm. something that, you know, don't climb up there, it's dangerous. Why not? Is it a crime? All this kind of stuff, you know, from mm. people with absolutely nothing wrong in their lives and, and fine. And I think that's, mm. that's, that's something I noticed, which I'm sure when I was a kid at school, we just wouldn't answer back like that. Mm. Um, so there's that, and I think it's a wider problem. And I think that that probably is, is part of the thing where the police just aren't respected either. Where does this come from? I don't know where it comes from. It could come from the fact that perhaps 100 years ago, in a much more religious society, people were fearful of God, maybe because that now isn't around. I don't know. But and, if you look at actually people, the way... And, and people like you have kind of completely undermined that fear, haven't you? Quite rightly, because <laughs> people because yeah. people should know the truth. <laughs> Well, because people know they've been lied to for so long, don't they? No, but I think, but I think also, if you, and, I, and you probably don't want me to go too far down this road, but if you look at the people who are supposedly in charge of us, who are, in my view, potentially corrupt, um, self-serving, uh, shown to have not followed rules they themselves have set, we only look recently at you know things like yeah. the non-dom situation, so on and so forth. So if that is happening at the very top of government, which mm. surely we should be able to respect, but people find it very difficult to. Mm, you know, it yeah. filters down through everything, I think. Yeah. I never thought I'd look back on the Blair years with nostalgia, you know? I mean, you know, I'd say this, you could have a thousand podcasts on this subject alone, couldn't you? I haven't got time, we'll need to wrap up in a minute. But um, yeah, it's, uh, if anybody needs to, to, you know, ask that question about why standards generally are slipping, of, of you know in public discourse and everything else and behavior and you only have to look at the people at the top don't you and say well you know well it's it, it, exactly i watched um i think you messaged about it yesterday i watched came in halfway through a program about thatcher and reagan yesterday and whatever you think of their politics neither, neither here nor there really but there were people who actually people just you know they were trying to do a job and they believed in their own you know conviction and, and got on with it and that's very interesting we talk about nuclear disarmament so on and so forth and how reagan actually was desperately trying to rid the world of nuclear weapons in his uh, discussions with Gorbachev. And I thought, I don't know, okay, so I was a teenager at the time and perhaps I had a sort of different view of it than, than, I, than, I, than I would do now. But I don't know, they just seem to be, they seem to be bigger and more worldly wise. And I'm sure every politician's always been self-serving, less self-serving. They were trying to deal with something which mm -hmm. could have ended or preserved the world. Yeah. And that was there, that was what was driving them. And I look now and I think, that's perhaps not what's what's well, I going think they, on. I think I think it's gravitas. They had gravitas, didn't they? Um, Absolutely. That, that generation and that sense of gravitas has completely, not in all cases, because I've I've had this conversation with John Sutherland on the two or three episodes ago, and there are some lots and lots of fantastic constituency MPs out there just quietly getting on with it behind the scenes, um, serving their constituents. But unfortunately, the people who seem to claw their way to the top um seem to be you know largely devoid of that of that gravitas don't they well but it's the same thing as well there's people in the police that are just talking absolute nonsense and coming up with jargon and inventing words for the sake of it you know it's mm -hmm. the part of that same thing is it you're not there for the job you're there for some other purpose which i don't think is is serving anybody 
But um, yeah, well, there we go. I could go on about the phrases. You probably want to wrap yeah. up, Benny. Listen, I think that's probably not a bad place to to draw a line. Um, as much as anything, because I've got to take my eldest to the train station, and to get how how, how old is your eldest? She will be thirty in June. Which so is... I used to walk to the train station when I was five. <laughs> yes, well, uh, I'm not too sure she'd be very happy walking along a dual carriageway for four and a half miles uh, with her suitcase to go back to where she's living in Portugal at the moment. But uh... Oh, very nice. <laughs> right, I better go here. Listen, yeah, no thanks a million, mate. It's, I've really enjoyed that. It's been great. And um, I've, uh, I've screenshotted your... Um, uh, you look like, I say, you look like a cross between um, kind of Ernest Hemingway and uh, Ernest Shackleton. So uh, I will be putting that on the podcast. Uh, mm, uh, no, you won't. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good speech. Right, listen, good right. chat, and we'll catch up soon, yeah? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, bye, bye, bye. See Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his feet. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. (laughs) 